Hello, thanks for listening. I'm Liam Gammon. I'm the editor of New Mandala. The conversation you're about to listen to was recorded at a public conference at the Australian National University on the 9th of March 2018. On the panel were Leng Territ, who's a PhD candidate at the University of New South Wales Australian Defence Force Academy campus and a former Cambodian Foreign Ministry official, Elaine Pearson, the Australia Director at Human Rights Watch, and Professor Gareth Evans, the Chancellor of the Australian National University and a former Australian Foreign Minister. Moderating the panel is Aaron Connolly, who heads the Southeast Asia program at the Lowy Institute. To speed things up on the day, we did not mic the audience, so I'll just paraphrase questions from the floor as they arise. I'll also apologetically flag that the audio quality is a little bit patchy. Here's Aaron Connolly getting the conversation started. Conversation with Musakua. Um, in this panel, what we'd like to do is talk about regional responses to events in Cambodia. Um, and we're going to run this relatively informally. We'll have a little bit of a conversation to start out, and then we'll uh, open up the floor for questions. Uh, but I'd like to first ask uh, a question. Lang, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you see as constructive regional responses to the situation in Cambodia right now? Are there things that the international community, particularly ASEAN and Australia, can be doing to improve the situation in Cambodia? Are there things that would, be, would not be constructive, that are unhelpful? Actually, uh, so far I haven't seen any, we call, substantial reactions from ASEAN as well as Australia in, uh, with regard to the, uh, the problems happening in Cambodia. But I do believe, for me, I'm taking the positive view that the Australia as well as ASEAN can somehow play an important role in constructing or mediating Cambodian uh, conflict, especially Australia. This is what I really expect most, because uh, the Australia used to play a very important role during the Cambodian conflict in the 1980s and 1990s. So I really hope Australia can play a mediating role during the ASEAN summit. Either we can do back back-to-back uh, -back meeting or at the sideline of the uh, ASEAN summit? I guess maybe it's helpful to ask more of a baseline question, which is the international community has had really maximalist goals in Cambodia, the establishment of a liberal democracy. Have recent events made those maximalist goals unattainable? Are there more minimalist goals that the international community should be striving for? Uh, or is the creation of a liberal multi-party democracy with competitive elections is that still something that we should be working towards? Yes, actually, uh, if you look at the ASEAN today, the, uh, the problems with the, the re these regions, like uh, they still face a lot of problems we call democratic deficits. The ASEAN, even what happened in Thailand, what happened in the Philippines, you can see that what, what do you expect them to respond to the Cambodian? So I... I do believe that the, at the moment, they may not be able to respond. But maybe now we can play. Elaine, are these maximalist goals still attainable in Cambodia? Or should we be focused on more minimalist goals, like uh, seeking the release of Kem Sukha, uh, seeking space for civil society? I mean, I don't think it's either or. I think we should be doing all of those things at once. And, you know, frankly, I think what we've seen from the international community is absolutely not enough. You know, with, I think, the, the fact that the US has really been absent, um, we've seen Hun Sen, you know, basically taking advantage of that fact in the past year. 
And so every step of the way, there has been very little opposition. And so we would like to see more of a coordinated uh, response from the region and from concerned uh, democratic governments that address actually all of those factors. So, you know, I think part of it is about standing with civil society, um, standing with journalists, because we are seeing the impacts of these rules is not just on the political opposition, but as we heard this morning, you know, even on um, those who are trying to stand up for their rights in terms of land grabs and so on. Um, as far as Australia is concerned, you know, I think Australia's been sending very mixed messages. So yes, there was one statement that came after the dissolution of the CNRP, um, a statement of concern. At the same time, you know, it referred to Cambodia as a friend. At the same time, Australia has invited Hun Sen to come here for the ASEAN summit. Um, and we saw that there was that um, ceremony, which I think Gareth referred to earlier, um, just in the month before that, which announced uh, regular high-level discussions between Cambodian officials and Australian officials. And I think, you know, what message that sends to the Cambodian public and also to the Australian public is that Australia is standing with this government, you know, come hell or high water, and that it doesn't really matter what this government does, Australia will stand with you. Gareth? Well, there's no harm in that kind of engagement, having the high-level dialogue and inviting Hun Sen to come, provided when you have these opportunities, you actually exercise them to convey some very, very clear messages. I mean, the, the basic rule about conveying messages to badly behaved other governments is you, of course, do that which is productive. You don't shrink from doing that which is unproductive because it has a potential at least long-term drip effect, which may or may not ultimately bear fruit, even if not in the short term. And it does give encouragement to those inside the country, as we've heard from Musokwa, through social media and so on, who are reinforced in their belief that there is a body of international support out there that really does care. What you avoid in these sorts of private diplomatic exchanges, and of course even more obviously in the public ones at roundtable ASEAN meetings or more general public statements, what you try to avoid is counterproductive representations, those which are going to make the situation worse. And there are sometimes when you're in the human rights business, as Human Rights Watch will well know, when naming and shaming uh, in a very overt way uh, can be counterproductive and make things actually worse, both in the short and the longer term for the people you're trying to help. I don't think that's the case in Cambodia. I don't think anything anyone said, publicly or privately, could possibly be counterproductive for Hun Sen at the moment because he's feeling so confident and he's feeling on such a high in terms of his political capacity to stare down the internal dissent, his economic capacity to stare down sanctions because of China's support and because his behaviour is simply outrageous and can't get much more outrageous as a result of any external um, embarrassment he might suffer. So if I was in government now in Australia, I would not be in the slightest bit inhibited about telling him in words of one syllable at private meetings and across a table, muting the language a little bit across the table and publicly, but making the message very, very clear. Framing it as always, as one does in these situations, in terms of what's in the best interests of the country, that Cambodia's reputation is suffering grievously, that Hun Sen is storing up potential instability for the future if this pattern of repression continues. He's not helping himself, his country or his government and he ought to be listening to what people are telling him. That's the way you cast these messages, not just we've got our values and we think you should observe them. But all of those things I think ought to be part of uh, 
Australia's repertoire, and I wouldn't shrink from taking every available opportunity to do that. In terms of ASEAN's capacity, well, that's a, another story. ASEAN's capacity and willingness to do anything very useful at the moment is, uh, is highly problematic because there's a bit of a race to the bottom right around ASEAN in terms of democracy and human rights in so many of the countries there, but maybe we'll come back to that. I want to come back to this issue of Australia's response, though, because, Elaine, you've, you've characterised the response as weak. You've said that Australia is not doing enough. And there's a lot of talk about the Refugee Resettlement Agreement and the role that that may play in Australia's response. But is that really still a barrier to a stronger Australian response at this point, given that only fewer than a dozen people were ever resettled in Cambodia? There appear to be only three uh, refugees that are still resident in Cambodia. Is that still really exercising a break on the Australian response, or is it more of a sort of realpolitik uh, calculation that's, that's going on? I mean, I think the refugee resettlement deal does have a role to play. And, I mean, I don't know why that is because, I mean, as you said, it's been a complete failure from start to finish. Only three people uh, remain in Cambodia. So I don't know why Australia is so belligerently stuck to, you know, saying that this deal is not a failure and trying to sort of promote it as a success. But I think actually the bigger issue at play is concern about China's influence in the region. And I think part of... The idea of having this ASEAN summit is that Australia thinks it's strategic to really develop and deepen ties with ASEAN countries, including Cambodia, at this point in time. And look, that's absolutely something that Australia is entitled to do, but I don't think that means that Australia should gloss over the very real deep-seated human rights problems that exist in a number of ASEAN countries, but especially in Cambodia. And I mean, I think even just looking at the statement that Hun Sen made just a couple of weeks ago where he threatened to go after potential protesters who burn effigies of him saying, I will use violence against you, I will beat you. I mean, that demands a strong response. So I think there are ways that, you know, Australia could use summits like this. It shouldn't be a race to the bottom with China. It shouldn't be responding to China by behaving like China and just closing its eyes to the realities of the human rights challenges these countries face. I think, you know, one thing that Australia could do with this summit is to make sure that civil society from ASEAN countries is invited to participate in the summit. And Australia is inviting people from the business community. It's also having a focus on counterterrorism. There will be security analysts present. Why not also extend that to civil society? And why not make sure that human rights, good governance and the rule of law is also part of those discussions? I wonder, Lang, can you tell us, you've worked in the Cambodian Foreign Ministry, so you understand these, these dynamics better than most. What is the dynamic in Cambodia between China and Vietnam? It, and is there sort of a race to the bottom uh, with regards to diplomacy with Cambodia right now? Is China exercising a greater and greater influence on, on Cambodian diplomacy and politics? I would say since 1997, China has been exercising the uh, greater influence on Cambodia economically as well as you know, politically. And this is the, the fact that everyone knows. So the question is, how Cambodia maneuver between China and Vietnam? Vietnam also has an influence on Cambodia as well, because Vietnam is one of the main economic partners of Cambodia. If I remember correctly, is Vietnam is ranked about fifth to sixth in, uh, in terms of investment in Cambodia. This is not to mention about trading. In terms of trading, Vietnam also trade a lot with Cambodia. That's why the two countries try to exercise their respective influence on Cambodia. So Cambodia knows that both of them try to rule. And we try to stay in the middle in order to maximize our interest in relation with both of them. But, but given China's influence in Cambodia today, what hope can Western countries have of being able to influence Cambodia, uh, short of, say, suspending GSP preferences, which would presumably have a very negative effect on uh, the average Cambodian worker? 
Well, the only things that uh, the Western countries could do right now, realistically speaking, they have to uh, continue providing assistance to Cambodia in terms of, you know, textile and garments. This is to make sure that Cambodia will not completely fall to China. This is the only way they can do. Because now Cambodia has a way. If, if you, uh, you, know, you press Cambodia too much, it will run to China. So then what else? The Western countries can sanction, put any sanction on Cambodia? Mm, I don't think that that would really work because they have the Chinese backing. So, yeah. Gareth, you, you manage these dynamics uh, when you were foreign minister. Is it a different situation today or can you still use some of the same methods that you used when you were foreign minister? Well, you look at the forms of economic pressure you can apply, you look at the forms of political pressure you can apply, the economic levers available for anybody's use against Cambodia at the moment are extremely limited because of the extent of the Chinese economic support, Cambodian capacity to stare down almost anything ranging from targeted sanction irritants all the way through trade sanctions up to fully-fledged financial capital flow sanctions of the kind that ultimately brought down the South African apartheid regime, sports and culture and trade sanctions didn't matter very much. They brushed those aside, but the financial ones really hurt. But these are the ones that you, one can't see having an effect in the Cambodian situation. So really, I think realistically, you're, you're back just to political pressure. And that's going to be very hard to apply because at the global level, whether you're talking about the Security Council or anyone else, there's just so many other distractions with the Middle East and North Korea and Russian chest beating and African you know, major conflict, loss of life situations, what is still essentially seen globally as an internal human rights problem and not one of genocidal dimensions, just a, a common and garden, albeit very ugly human rights problem, is not going to energise, unfortunately, too much activity internationally. Maybe through the Human Rights Council, yes, that's probably about the only available vehicle. And even utilising the Paris Conference framework and trying to re-energise that, at the end of the day, all that will really do is get you back into other parts of the UN system and whether that really adds value is questionable. In the ASEAN context, um, it's very difficult to imagine any collective political pressure at all being applied for reasons already discussed. I mean, the human rights situation, the democracy situation. Vietnam has a bit of leverage over Cambodia, but is Vietnam going to exercise that in favour of democracy and human rights? Well, good luck on that. <laughs> Uh, and, and the others, the notion of a collective ASEAN response in this situation is really uh, really problematic. I mean, for all practical purposes, Cambodia has become a wholly owned subsidiary of China, along with Laos. And in the context of all the ASEAN mechanisms, all the consensus-driven mechanisms that ASEAN now has, that makes it very, very difficult to get that pressure, even if the will was there from a lot of these other countries. Indonesian leadership will be critical in this respect, but Indonesian leadership has been, I'm afraid, in recent years, a, a bit of a vacuum on this stuff. So what is the kind of political pressure? I really do think it's just the, the naming, the shaming, the investigations to the extent that you can do that through the Human Rights Council. That's very important to keep that going and to have the sort of pressure flowing from a lot of countries bilaterally in order to, as well as through those multilateral forums, to, to get that done. In the hope of just two things. One, that the leadership of the country will be uncomfortable at the level of continuing spotlight they're getting. No country, however arrogant or indifferent it appears to be to external pressure, no country likes it. And, you know, the, the, the anger with which Hun Sen erupts on these occasions is, I think, indicating just that. And that's important 
important to maintain that, but it's also particularly important to maintain that visible political pressure because of the support it gives to the internal population. And at times their, their voice may be suppressed at the moment, but it can't be suppressed forever. And at the end of the day, if you can keep that spirit alive and that sense among the Cambodian people that there really is a very big body of support out there, including from traditional supporters like Australia, it does make more realistic the possibility of a colour revolution. And it does, it, it gnaws away at Hun Sen's own ultimate confidence in his capacity to go on doing what he's doing. And as such, it's an important contributor to the dynamic that we're all trying to produce. Elaine, one of the things that Human Rights Watch has called for are some of these uh, visa bans uh, and also uh, asset freezes. Uh, and the U.S. State Department has said that it has implemented visa bans on Cambodian officials, although they've declined to name which ones and, and some of their family members. Do you see that as having a, a helpful effect or pushing Cambodia back toward democracy? Gareth seems to think, uh, think not, that it's mostly political pressure, but have these actually, have we seen these have a positive effect in the past in other countries or in Cambodia? I mean, I think at this stage, if it's only the U.S., and I think Germany has also implemented some travel bans, if it's only those two countries, then it's largely symbolic. But I think what we really need to do is look at ways that we can isolate the Chinas and the Vietnams and try and bring more countries on board. And that's why I think it actually is very important that countries like Australia are also considering uh, visa bans and, and asset freezes. But yes, I mean, in terms of whether they will have the desired impact, unless we could get many more countries to, to implement them, then they will be of limited uh, value. Um, but you know, I don't think that means that we shouldn't try. And I think it, you know, at this point, it is also about drawing a line in the sand and saying that this kind of behaviour isn't something that, you know, Australia tolerates. And I think earlier someone mentioned, you know, this reference to the white paper and the fact that in that white paper it talks about the importance of progressing a regional rule-based order that respects international law and that pr promotes human rights. And so I think this is an important part of it. And I think there are initiatives, like there's been talk of the Quad, India, Japan, Australia, the US. You know, maybe this would be a challenge to try and get those democratic countries to address a situation like Cambodia, but I think it, it needs to be tried. I want to come to the audience for questions soon. We're going to open it up relatively quickly, and then we'll just continue this conversation with your questions. But before we do that, I want to ask, um, you know, there's a little bit of talk about the Quad, but Japan played a, a, an enormously important role during the Paris Peace Accords and after. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be playing quite as helpful a role from, from the Australian perspective or from the perspective of uh, liberalizers li like yourselves uh, as it did in the past. Is there a prospect to get Japan more engaged, particularly given the geopolitical angles here? I think you'd be waiting for a very long time for Japan to really contribute uh, anything very adventurous or creative or useful in this context. I have to say that um, that was essentially my characterization for all the love I had for certain of the individuals involved. And that was my assessment of the Japanese contribution to the UNTAC process. And Japan's recent enthusiasm for providing, I think, 10,000 ballot boxes for the election this year. You know, this is our contribution to democracy in an election which can't possibly be taken seriously in the context of the banning of the CNRP just represents a sort of a rather strange set of priorities. Now, Japan, I mean, we all love Japan, and I think it is important in the context of the the China overreach issue for China to be getting the message, not just about the so-called quad countries. I would be much more comfortable if South Korea, if Indonesia, and indeed Vietnam, the other major countries of the whole sweeping region, were part of a greater and more visible process of diplomatic communication, military preparedness indeed, uh, just to demonstrate that um, overreach will have its consequences. Uh, that's an important message to give to China. Whether any of this will help very much in the immediate dynamic 
dynamic of Cambodia, I'm afraid I've, I very much doubt. I think the, the ultimate dynamic for Cambodia has to be internal, it has to be supported as far as possible by the key regional countries, it has to be supported as far as possible bilaterally by countries like Australia, it has to be supported as far as possible through the multilateral mechanisms that we have, in particular the Human Rights Council. But at the end of the day, all you're really able to do um, is create the conditions ultimately for the voice of the Cambodian people and the confidence of the Cambodian people to, um, to bear fruit and hopefully in a, a non-violent way with non-violent outcomes. Can I just come in on Japan and the Human Rights Council? I mean, there have been very rare occasions where Japan has risen to the occasion on human rights and I'm thinking of North Korea and the Commission of Inquiry. So, you know, that has happened on occasion but that also, you know, obviously there were certain issues with North Korea and the abductions of Japanese citizens that made it right for them to show more leadership. But it's not impossible. And certainly we are trying through our Tokyo office to try and get Japan to be a bit more proactive um, on some of these country situations. In that respect, um, Japan is the penholder of the resolution at the Human Rights Council on Cambodia. And last year, uh, when that resolution was being debated, you know, there certainly was this discussion about having some kind of reporting mechanism ahead of the upcoming election that would task either the OHCHR or the Secretary General to report on conditions in the country prior to the election. Now, unfortunately, Japan got cold feet, so that language which was drafted ended up coming out of the proposal. But, I mean, I think getting the Japans and the Koreas and the Indonesias on side is, is really going to be crucial if we're going to have strong action at the Human Rights Council. Actually, regarding the Japan involvement in Cambodia, Japan take a very precocious actions regarding the Cambodian problem today because Japan has a big interest in containing China, in uh, influence in Cambodia. Especially, uh, you know, Japan also the member of East Asian Summit as well. Once if Japan press Cambodia too much, and then the uh, East Asian Summit that Japan is one of the active members there will become loose, loosened, and then China can break in. And then Japan could no longer play an uh, active role in the East Asian Summit mechanism. This is uh, the reason why Japan has been very silent regarding the uh, Cambodian problem today. Yeah, I wonder if Japan feels like it's gotten its, uh, its money's worth, given all of its aid and, and the fact that it has softened the resolutions at the Human Rights Council. I, I want to open it up to questions. Is there a question from the audience right here in the second row? The first questioner was concerned about how to overcome the likelihood that any international support for civil society could be cast by the government as foreign interference or as a threat to Cambodian sovereignty. Gareth Evans responds. Well, there's always that risk of it being so characterised and unquestionably will be characterised if the engagement is very direct and takes the form of big poultices of money going to particular human rights groups and so on. Of course, that's going to be the reaction. Uh, I don't think that should stop anyone from supporting genuinely democratic and human rights promoting causes, provided the people on the ground who you're trying to help are comfortable with that support visibly coming to them. And if they're not, you've got to, of course, respect that. My point was really a more general one that this over political pressure of regional and global countries was just an important emotionally and psychologically reinforcing factor for those people in the country who are deeply unhappy with the regime, have been effectively suppressed by the regime's authoritarianism. But to keep that spark alive and to have that sense among them uh, that you know, their cause is understood, there is that support, I just think that's tremendously, tremendously important. That's really the point I was making more than 
and the overt support for dem democracy institutions or whatever, of which America's you know, got a long, long history of supporting this stuff with, with very mixed results. But um, what you're trying to do is encourage an internal dynamic. Of course, that's, that's also very dangerous from Hun Sen's point of view, even the indirect encouragement of that internal dynamic. And he's going to fulminate and rage against it, but that shouldn't stop us for a second. This is, there's sort of a delightful inversion of these dynamics given that this conference is being funded by Yaya Santifa based in Jakarta, uh, civil society in Indonesia funding conferences in Australia. But I, I was wondering, um, Elaine, do you want to come in on this and talk about the role of civil society in Cambodia? Not necessarily support for opposition political parties and democratic process, um, but is there a role for that uh, Western countries, in particular Australia, uh, can play in supporting civil society in Cambodia uh, that might sort of preserve some of the gains that have been made over the last 25 years? It's an important role for Australia and other concerned countries to make sure that civil society are an active part of the discussions that they have, that they're not only dealing with the elites of the country, the government officials, the politicians, but that they do take efforts to reach out and invite civil society officials to attend receptions at the embassy, um, to attend, you know, indeed events that are happening here in Australia. I think that can provide a measure of protection, which is really important. Um, to civil society members. And it doesn't always work. I mean, you know, we're seeing in Vietnam now that, you know, even those who have been meeting and briefing the EU ahead of the Human Rights Dialogue are also facing arrest and harassment. But I think it certainly sends a message that we are listening to civil society, that we are concerned and that we are talking to the Cambodian people, not just talking to the Cambodian government, which is, I think, a really strong message that concerned democratic governments can send. So another question from the audience, right here in the front row. Our next questioner made reference to recent shows of support for Cambodian democracy on the part of Indonesian legislators and asked whether ASEAN parliamentarians can be an effective source of pressure on the Cambodian government. Maybe we go to, to Lang. Can you tell us, can parliamentarians, in, independent interventions from within ASEAN, is that maybe a less confrontational way and a more effective way to approach these issues with the Cambodian government? Or uh, because they're not necessarily speaking for the government, is that, is that not effective? Parliamentarian, you know, it has been many times that IPA has issued some kind of statements against some kind of uh, human right violation, not only in Cambodia, but anywhere else in Southeast Asia. But the problem is whether it is effective or not. Of course, they have the right to issue whatever they want to voice their concern. <coughs> they have the right to do so. But uh, whether it is effective, um, it's still questionable. Because the government, maybe they shut their eye, they don't listen. You know what happened in Asia. They have to go through the consensus space. So uh, for me, the parliament can do whatever they want, but uh, maybe they, it won't be effective, very much effective. Well, as a parliamentarian for 21 years, I'm afraid I have a pretty healthy scepticism about what parliamentarians, qua parliamentarians, are ever capable of doing in international contexts apart from attending conferences and signing statements. I think the voice of parliamentarians is a useful addition to the buzz of pressions you're trying to generate, in particular for feedback into the country itself, that there is support out there. But the notion that there's any likely direct effect value add in terms of executive government behaviour change or international organisation additional pressure flowing simply from parliamentary lobbying. That's, that's pretty optimistic in my experience. Part of the buzz, useful, don't stop, but don't put too many uh, expectations, don't put too much weight on it. The next questioner was interested in the panel's thoughts on the refugee deal between the Australian government and Cambodia, as well as Prime Minister Hun Sen's recent threats to beat up anybody who protested his visit 
visit to Australia. Aaron Connolly summarises the question before throwing to Gareth Evans. Let me say, let me ask specifically, should the government have had a stronger response when Hun Sen issued those threats last week? Um, what should the response be when his delegation is here in, in Australia? Well, obviously, Hun Sen's language was intolerable and he should have been called out uh, at the time and he should be called out when the government meets him at high level next week and should be equally strong language around that conference table. Whether that happens is extremely doubtful for several reasons which have already been articulated. I mean, one, the general desire not to make waves and create shocks that will throw out the, the glorious harmony of this, uh, of this particular high-level summit meeting. Two... In that same context, which I do have some sympathy for, the belief that we do have to try and create some greater degree of solidarity between Australia and ASEAN in the context of the new dynamics of the region and potential Chinese overreach. It's very important that Australia, and, and this is very much the government's thinking, as, as has been said, but the notion of ASEAN formally as an institution, acting in that concerted way is extremely implausible because of the veto consensus process and Cambodia's status in relation to China. All of that's, that's the case. Uh, but that's, that's another reason why the government is, is being cautious about this whole business of offending anyone in that context. But the other, the other reason for the government's caution is, as, as Hong Lim has said and others have said, has been this extraordinarily squalid... Uh, indefensible, unworkable refugee dumping deal. I mean, everything about it is intolerable. Uh, the conceptualisation of it, the notion that you could bribe a developed country uh, to take people, um, plus, of course, the, the incongruity of Australia having done the right thing, for example, with Kim Lay's widow and finally accepted her and her family as, in effect, refugees into Australia. We're accepting refugees from the very country that we're trying to send refugees back in, uh, which is, you know, just a demonstration of just the indefensibility of the whole enterprise. I hope, Hong, that if there is a change of government at the national level, whatever ducking and weaving goes on between now and the next election to preserve the integrity of the squalid bipartisan consensus on dealing with refugees, I do hope and rather expect that a little bit more humanity will prevail because I don't think, certainly in the Labor side of politics, anyone is comfortable with the continuation in perpetuity of this terrible situation on, on Manus and Nauru. Obviously, without getting into the complexity of what you do about the refugee, the boat people situation, Obviously, you've got to have a very strong continued pushback uh, system in operation. Obviously, you've got to work like hell to develop effective cooperation with the key countries of the region in terms of management of the day-to-day -day issues and refugee processing. And clearly, as part of it, uh, we've got to accept a higher intake of refugees that do come through proper channels so processed. And if you do all that, I think the uh, the anxiety about um, you know giving encouragement to the people smugglers and the people drowners is wildly overstated. And I hope that a little bit of sanity and a little bit of decency will prevail. But until it does, you are right that this is inhibiting Australia because of the anxiety to keep alive the semblance of that deal and the semblance of the credibility of it. A deep, deep, deep anxiety not to do anything that will um, seriously alienate Hun Sen and the Cambodians. But that's uh, been chasing a will-o'-the-wisp from the beginning and uh, should not in itself be a reason for the government so acting. I mean, I think Australia should have had a strong response to that statement by Hun Sen at the time and should have asked him to retract those remarks. 
I think maybe Hun Sen was trying to go to Australia. Maybe he never even wanted to come to Sydney for the summit. So he was hoping that there would be this strong, forceful response and then he could get out of coming. Maybe that's also what the Australian government was thinking and why they're saying that they did so privately instead of publicly. That remains. I think it makes Australia look very desperate. It's desperate to have this ASEAN summit uh, portrayed as a success. It doesn't want these pesky issues of human rights interfering with the success of that summit. And I think it's desperate also to portray this refugee deal, which has been a disaster from beginning to end, again as a success, when everyone knows that it's a, a failure. I wonder if I could just ask Lang, how is the refugee resettlement deal perceived in Cambodia? We've heard about the two protests that occurred uh, after the re refugee resettlement deal was announced, but how is it perceived by the government? Do they value this deal? I'm not a government official, so I, 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 I'm not sure uh, how the, the government perceived, but at least from the academic point of view, I think Cambodian government think that this is the way to... Uh, how can it strengthen Australian-Cambodian relation? Because Cambodian government has appreciated what the Australian government did in the past in terms of peace building in Cambodia. This is the way to show the appreciation to the Australian government. And also, I think maybe in terms of the strategic calculation, maybe the CVP would let government know that there are big communities, Cambodian communities here. So maybe this is the best way to ensure a good relationship with Australia so that they can exert some influence over Australian government. This is what I guess. <laughs> but uh, I'm not sure whether it's, you know, it's true or not from the uh, government point of view. I want to go back to a, a more of a baseline question, which is, uh, it goes to this broader question of, of what we're trying to accomplish in Cambodia. And this is perhaps a little bit more sensitive, but... There have been a number of concerns raised quietly with the CNRP and its leaders, with Kem Sukha and formerly Sam, Sam Rainzi, about its rhetoric regarding people of ethnic Vietnamese origin in Cambodia. And there is some concern that in supporting a democratic process, you could allow a party to achieve power that does not uh, respect human rights of people of ethnic Vietnamese origin. Is that something that we should be concerned about in terms of supporting the democratic process in Cambodia? It, regularly, CNRP leaders have said that uh, they will disavow this sort of rhetoric, but then it comes back up again. It's something I've always, frankly, been concerned about, and I've communicated that concern on a number of occasions to members of the Cambodian community here who've urged upon me massive shows of public support for Sam Renzi in particular. I think um, Sam Renzi personally has a long history of a deep and abiding hostility to Cambodians of Vietnamese descent, which he's articulated in some rather unhappy terms on many occasions over the years. Now, now, there's some sort of rational justification for that in terms of the political history of the country and, and Hun Sen's Vietnam relationships and all the rest of it. It is a bit more complex than being a straight-out sort of racist ethnic position being articulated, and I'm prepared to acknowledge that. But I've, I've always had a degree of caution, I have to say, about, uh, about Sam Renzi. I'm not so sure about the other members of C, CNRP. I think, I think there's, generally speaking, people have been rather you know, more muted in their position on this. But uh, it, is, it is an issue. And it's one of, the, one of the reasons back in the, um, when, when I said in my opening remarks today that initially my response in 97 and so on was, um, was perhaps a bit mute, more muted than in respect that in retrospect I think was justified is I, I did have a real sense of caution about just what the opposition party was, was standing for and what we'd be getting ourselves into if you know they were to come into power. But I think now as the situation has further evolved, this is a second order issue and it ought not to be a showstopper in terms of international calling out of, uh, of Hun Sen. But I, Human Rights Watch might want to have some more to say on that. 
No, I mean, I think I largely agree. I mean, I think on one side, no political party is perfect. All political parties have problems and I think we should be challenging, you know, every political party that has espouses values that don't respect human rights and we should be calling that out. Um, at the same time, I think we're dealing with the reality of what is going on in the country and the reality is we are seeing this steamrolling of dissent and very little space for civil society. And so I think, you know, in terms of what the best we can do, for us, we're really trying to sort of try and make things better, but also try and, I guess, limit the harm that is being done. Because I think we're all very realistic about, you know, the, the fact that these elections are going ahead and that there is no opposition. And so how can we, you know, prevent things from getting even worse? And Link, how does this factor into how people see things in Vietnam, how Vietnam uh, uses its influence in Cambodia? Is this a very big issue, some of the, the concerns about uh, people of ethnic Vietnamese origin in, in Cambodia? There has been some concern about the uh, Vietnamese influence through the ethnic Vietnamese there. But from my perspective as an academic, I can see it's not really a concern because the, uh, the Vietnamese ethnic have been there for years, many years already. So if we don't deal with them, we don't, how can I say, we don't deal with them so where uh, they can cause problems for our countries because many of them can become stateless and you can question what will they do next. They will commit crimes and then cause instability to the country, like one ha what happened in Sri Lanka between Sinhalis and Tamil. You can see there's discrimination. And I admit that maybe some kind of discrimination exists in Cambodian society. But to what extent, I'm not quite sure. I need to study about that. So in this point, I think Cambodia and Vietnam, you know, like uh, if Cambodian governments take very rough actions on the ethnic Vietnamese and then the, our relationship I mean, between Cambodia and Vietnam will become problematic. And then the, uh, it will affect economic as well as other political aspects. The next questioner was concerned with the CPP's influence within the Cambodian community in Australia. The questioner wondered what the Australian government's response should be. It's particularly interesting in light of the debate we've had recently about Chinese influence in Australia and groups like this uh, that are sponsored by the Chinese embassy. Um, do we need to be concerned about CPP influence in Australia? Silencing yeah. voices in Australia? Yeah, I, th I think we do. I think we need to be concerned about a number of groups um, and foreign interference in Australia with a number of ethnic communities. We've seen that in our work, um, even with the Ethiopian community. I've heard it happening with the Cambodian community and also uh, with the Chinese here in Australia. Now, the government introduced a suite of foreign interference laws at the end of last year. I think the problem with those laws is that they are way overly broad and overly vague and they will criminalise a whole lot of behaviour um, that is essential to our democracy. The actions of whistleblowers, the actions of human rights defenders, the actions of journalists, without actually really getting at the core of this problem because it is actually much more covert than that. I think a better response from the Australian government would be to create some kind of independent monitor that would um, take these complaints from these communities and that would perhaps act as a liaison with the Australian Federal Police to make sure that those complaints are being investigated. Because right now, I think a lot of people from these communities feel like they've fled persecution and repression in their home countries, and yet they're finding that they don't feel safe um, to speak up freely or to participate in demonstrations in Australia because of the possible repercussions they face or their families may face back home. 
Concerns about the importation of homeland political antagonisms into the diaspora community here in Australia has been around as long as I can remember my entire public life going back 50 years uh, to the Balkans issues about Croatian and Serbian Ustasha influence and all the rest of it. I think you have to be extremely cautious about overreacting to that. If there's any shred of encouragement of violence, of course, that's totally intolerable and has to be cracked down with every resource we have available, policing, intelligence and all the rest of it. If there's just political activism, then you have to be extremely careful about taking sides. I mean, CNRP is being incredibly active in Australia at the moment. Is CPP to be denied an overt activist role? I mean, I had an exchange with Nicholas Farrelly about you know, the government being represented at this conference. On the whole, I believe that you know, all points of view should be feely and frankly heard and debated. I think there are good reasons perhaps for being a little bit cautious on this occasion. But um, I just think we've got to be extremely cautious about overreacting to arguments about political influence. If there's overt espionage, if there's overt influence, if students here in some other context are being you know, spied upon and their capacity to learn is going to be seriously inhibited or you know, that's, there, there are obviously serious policy issues involved there. But if you've simply got political activism uh, of the kind that's been described, uh, you know, I don't particularly like it uh, because I don't like the point of view that's being articulated by the other side, but I sure as hell wouldn't be trying to ban it. The next questioner noted what they saw as the hypocrisy over conversations of party influence within Australian Cambodian communities, asking what about the intimidation of CPP supporters? This was followed by two separate questions asking the panel whether they agreed that the Paris Peace Conference should be reconvened. First Aaron Connolly, then Gareth Evans' response. Yeah. I'm, I'm so sorry, sir. This seems like this probably deserves much more uh, time. Uh, than we have available, and I'm aware that I am the only thing standing between. I've, I've got the message. We, we know each other. We were at the peace conference together, and I know, I know what you're urging me to do. So I'll, I'll respond in a moment. I'll respond in a moment, but perhaps the others will want to respond. Well, I, I think there are really two questions here. There's the comment on the CPP influence debate, uh, but then also both of these questions are really for you, Dr. Evans. So do, do you want to respond on the Paris peace agreements and then also the, the gentleman's plea? Well, on the first question about CPP influence, I mean, if there's any shred of an indication of intimidation and people in the diaspora here of an overt kind, if it's, that intimidation takes the form also of veiled or overt threats about sanctions against people's family members back home, then that is manifestly intolerable and we're absolutely entitled as a country, country to resist that and we should. My concern is just not to throw the, the democratic and human rights baby out with the bathwater and be prepared to listen to other points of view that we find uncongenial. That's what democracy, that's what human rights, I'm afraid, is all about. I think that was your point and I, I endorse it. On the question of the, uh, the Paris Peace Accords and their continuing relevance, the, the situation now is different. I mean, then we had a continuing civil war. We had hundreds of thousands of people displaced across borders in other countries. It was a genuinely international issue. ASEAN was, Vietnam were divided, the major powers were divided. It was a, a diplomatic catastrophe which needed very close attention by a lot of people to unravelling it, and we did that. Now we've got an in-country situation for which the Paris 
agreement still has application. I mean, one of the relevant clauses of that combination of accords was that, and I'll just read it, in the event of serious violations of human rights in Cambodia, the parties to this accord will call upon the competent organs of the United Nations to take such other steps as are appropriate for the prevention and suppression of such violations in accordance with the relevant international instruments. That's still applicable to this day. Phnom Penh might not like the idea of it being applicable, but it is. But the trouble is, even though this is another vehicle for raising these issues, at the end of the day, what, what are the practical executive action options that flow from this? Well, you raise it with the relevant UN bodies. That's, that's, that's the mechanism that's there set out. So we can talk about this later, but basically I do think, while I don't underestimate the political utility of re-energising this process, I think it's extremely unlikely that it will be re-energised because you've got to get basically France and Indonesia, the two chairs of that conference, to be the prime movers in this respect. And at the end of the day, if you do move it, you're probably not going to be much further advanced than getting the issue by another route back into the Human Rights Council in Geneva. So don't don't stop talking about it. Don't stop talking about it as a possibly energising vehicle or publicity vehicle, but thinking of it as the, as the solution to the problem. I just think the dynamics have, have moved on from that. Final point, I mean, I do am grateful for the recognition of Australia's role. It is the case that, you know, we do have a legacy of respect in Cambodia, even from Hun Sen. I mean, he's, it hurts him, but periodically he has over the years acknowledged that Australia, you know, did play a major role in bringing things about. So we do have a voice which will be heard if we have things to say on these issues. And it's important for us to exercise that voice in all the contexts we've been mentioning, bilateral, regional, and through the Human Rights Council as opportunity arises. There was an effort um, by a number of civil society organisations last year, I believe it was in October, to write to the governments of France and Indonesia urging them to take action because the Paris Peace Accords are, are not being followed, as you put it. I mean, in terms of next steps, maybe there is a role. Gareth, your last op-ed was very powerful back in 2014. Maybe it's time for an open letter or another op-ed from, from those... <laughs> Well, I haven't exactly been quiet today, and this is on the record. And then, Lang, did you have one more thing to add on the Paris Peace Accords? I just want to stress about the, the impacts of the international system today on the uh, effectiveness of the Paris Peace Agreement. Yeah, I think Professor Gary Ivan somehow already mentioned about that. The uh, United States today, you know, unlike the United States before, so the, it just care about itself. So the problem is that who is going to enforce it? This is a problem of the Paris Peace Agreement. And also, remember that the Cambodia peace process can be achieved in 1991 because of the Chinese backing. The Chinese, in other words, the patrons of the Cambodian uh, uh, disputants, especially China and Vietnam, they come to agreement. And now, you can look what happened. China, whether China will support? I don't think so. I personally don't think China will support. So I think that the, uh, if any sanction, any enforcement regarding the uh, 1991 peace agreement, I don't think China will go and support it. This is not to mention about the uh, deliberate neglect of, of the United States today. Very good point. That's a, a good dose of realpolitik to, to conclude the panel on regional responses. I'd just like to ask you to thank our panel. That was recorded at Cambodia on the Brink, a public conference held at the ANU on the 9th of March 2018.
The conference was convened by Dr. Rebecca Gidley and was made possible with the support of the TIFA Foundation. On behalf of the university, I'd just like to thank all the speakers for making themselves available for what turned out to be a really interesting and frank conversation. Keep an eye out for more commentary and analysis on Cambodian politics in the run-up to the election this year at New Mandala. Thanks for listening. <laughs>